Welcome to the ESOP Podcast Summer School. We've selected highlights from our archives featuring employee owners that we'll re-release all summer. Because they're from the archives, please remember links and email addresses may no longer be valid. As you enjoy summer school, we'll be working hard behind the scenes to bring you new content and services this fall that are better than ever. Visit our new website at theesoppodcast.com. Enjoy summer school. Welcome to the ESOP Podcast, brought to you by Capital Trustees, keeping you up to date on all things ESOP. Hi, and thank you for tuning in to the ESOP Podcast. This is Brett Kiesling. We are recording this in Mystic, Connecticut, where the ESOP Association New England Chapter Meeting is being held. Uh, today, as we record this, it's Friday, October 12th, and I'm very happy to be sitting with Aaron Moberger of Harpoon Brewery. Aaron, how are you? Very well, thanks. How are you? Thank you very much for joining us. We are great. It's been a great conference so far. I know you're one of the chapter officers, so congratulations on a great job you and your uh, colleagues have done. Thank you. It's been a, it's been a great team effort. You know, they always are. We, ap- we appreciate uh, your sitting down uh, with this, Aaron, and uh, it's an ESOP podcast, but also a business podcast. Everybody knows you as Harpoon Brewery, but just to uh, set the record straight, that's actually not the name of the company, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. We started as Mass Bay Brewing Company in 1986, um, and the first brand was Harpoon, um, and UFO kind of came from that as another flavor option developed into its own brand. Um, we acquired Clown Shoes last fall, so Clown Shoes is another of our brands, and we do a cider too. So Mass Bay Brewing Company is the parent company, um, and Harpoon Brewery or UFO or um, those other two brands are. Are the brands within, but yeah. if uh, uh, folks are walking around referring to the company as Harpoon yeah. Brewery, as long as they're drinking your beer, you're good with that. A hundred percent. Excellent. Aaron. So Aaron, uh, what we're going to do is talk a little bit about you and a little bit about Harpoon Brewery and then your work in the employee ownership field, uh, which you do as a volunteer, and why you think that's important. So tell us a little bit about your story about how you got to uh, Harpoon Brewery and uh, uh, how you ended up being here today. Uh, as far as how I get to Harpoon and even in the business, uh, just very lucky. You know, um, I had a friend of mine from high school um, worked at a brewery up in Ipswich um, in 2010, and I was hanging out with him one day. He was going to play a baseball game on their team. Um, and so I wound up going to that game and played in that. And I'm not a baseball player. I'm a pretty lousy baseball player. But, but when you need a ninth person, then that's <laughs> anybody will do it. But you knew beer. So even yeah, though it yeah, wasn't yeah. baseball, you fit in with the beer team. I knew I, I knew I liked it. I didn't know much else at the time from it. You know, it was... Um, it was very, it was interesting. So great people, you know, had a lot of fun, played in a couple more games. And then they said, you seem to get along with everybody. And we have a person putting in their two weeks. Do you want to maybe apply for a job? So I did. Um, again, not knowing much about it, just stayed late washing kegs for a couple of weeks and got a job there and um, got into some other parts of the operations and then saw uh, about a year later a job opening up on the Harpoon bottling line. Um, Applied for that and got it and it was in the city so it was close to my girlfriend at the time who I became, you know, yeah, we got married and um, had our first son six months ago. So congratulations, that's great. Thank you very much. Um, there's so, when somebody says, you know, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, there's always that moment of, oh, is this going to be a happened? sad yeah. story? But no, it was marriage <laughs> and baby. Congratulations, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely great. Uh, so this was in terms of getting there, and and we'll pick up 
we moved on from being on the line, but this was just a classic serendipity. You were in the right yeah. place at the right time. Big time. Excellent. Yeah, and, big time. And, and so I met you her at one of those baseball games, too. So Dude, if, that I, was a, if that, I didn't go to the first game, I don't know. Probably wouldn't be talking with you guys. That today. is, uh, <laughs> uh, life is funny that way. That's, that's very cool. Yeah. So you're working on the line. Uh, that's not where you are now. So, so yeah. you continue to progress? Yep. yep. Worked on the bottom line for about a year, and stuff has has been changing rapidly the seven a little bit a little bit over seven years I've been with Harpoon um, so we were going from doing single and double bottling runs to doing triples and then eventually quads um, keg production was increasing so after a year on bottles I did about six months on kegs um, and then the spot opened up in the cellar so I get into cellaring so the fermentation and conditioning adding hops at that stage how to make the beer yeah 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 exactly we're actually making the beer or not really we we kind of say uh, the brewers make the wort and yeast makes the beer so we, we try to keep it happy um, and make sure that we're checking it regularly um, that in the rare thankfully you know we, we do enough stuff right that in the rare case we have to intervene to get to it early enough that we make the right decisions and make sure that we can produce that batch. And Aaron, uh, although, again, primarily we're, we're going to be talking ESOPs and business, I just can't help myself because it's it's fascinating. Can you explain to some of our listeners who may not be aware when yeah. you said uh, uh, the wort versus the yeast? Yeah, yeah, just yeah. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the brewing process takes, you know, making beer, um, which, is, which is by a lot, you know, it's fermentation, basically, and then whatever you do around that. Um, you mix the ingredients and then you wait. Yeah, yeah. For us, takes two weeks. But the, the brewing process is just making the, the wort, that's the bitter sugar water, essentially, um, that the yeast is going to ferment. Um, so that only that takes several hours. So that happens in the brew house. First thing you do is combine water and grain um, that you've milled. Um, so at, at a certain temperature, you activate diast called diastatic enzymes. Um, that break the starches into fermentable sugars, you know, so an important step, a bunch of other stuff happens, but that's kind of the main thing we're concerned about, or the thing that we're most concerned about at that stage. You put it into a louder ton and run it off. So basically that porridge that you made, you separate at that point the sweet wort, you know, because you basically, you had the two ingredients at that point. You boil it, um, although uh, New England style hazy IPAs have funny implications with the lesser no boiling that I understand people are experimenting with. So so the boil versus no boil will... Uh, I don't know anybody that's doing a production no boil batch. Um, okay. But yeah, we could... Yeah, that's an interesting... Getting a stable haze in those styles of beers turns out to be a challenge. So how you do that, and because when you're boiling, you, you, you cause a let's call it hot break at that stage, and then precursors to cold break when you cool it back down, that causes a lot of those haze-forming compounds to drop out. Because it used to be, you know, you'd, you'd filter and stabilize beer to where it's perfectly right, because people thought any decrement in the clarity um, not only was a flaw, but that maybe even it would hurt you, you know, right. which we know is not the it's case. It's poison if there's a little cloud, sure. as opposed to that's the natural that, science, the yep. physics of how it Big time, is. yeah, yeah. And that's related to what we do in the cellar, you know, as, as later stages, although we're finding out that we can do it earlier and be effective and actually get some beer back too, which are employee-led initiatives. And, um, and I'm glad that you pointed that out. So you have the uh, dual role of experimenting so to speak and I mean the company yeah. as, as, as a whole we're not saying that it's just you yeah. but of experimenting with flavors lines that kind of thing yeah. well in full production of yeah. the schedule of everything that you have to uh, put together yeah yes sir yeah it's really <clears throat> it's a pretty 
we got a good thing going because we have it's a 120 barrel system in Boston. We have a 50 barrel system in Windsor, so that's our main production. But we also have a 10 barrel pilot plant in Boston. And every so often, at the Innovation Brewery is actually based out of Windsor, and he'll do like you know one or two barrel batches or something like that. The 10 barrel batches will go into tanks in Boston, and then typically we'll run them right through our two visitor center. So it's a great R and D tool. So you get to uh, have the beer when people are coming in for the visiting. Uh, that's just an offering. That's it. And it lets you kind of market, uh, research it a little bit and Big see if time. people uh, like it while they're there. Very effective tool. Yeah, it's a, it's a very virtuous kind of construction. Let's go back uh, for just a moment because yeah. in terms of your position with the company, we yeah. kind of left you in the conversation where you're working on the line yeah, well, and you've evolved from them. So, yeah, yeah, so absolutely. So just bring us up to speed about yeah. uh, the other jobs you've had and then I actually want to talk about uh, how you market and plan the other flavors with the holiday seasons and yeah. you know that sort of thing. There's probably a lot to uh, keep track of. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, just take us through your uh, uh, the rest of your job uh, yeah. curriculum. Yeah, so after getting into the cellar, um, that's where you learn to uh, mostly monitor fermentations, uh, talking about uh, watching the gravity change. So as the sugars are fermented, you know, they'll decrease and then you see the alcohol increase. Um, mm -hmm. CO2 obviously, you know, gets carbonated. Um, so that's generally about five days. Um, you have to figure out when to crash cool the tanks. You go from your fermentation temperature, which generally is 70 for our stuff, down to 30. Um, and start the conditioning process. And the crash part, I imagine, is very quickly. How quickly does it go from 70 to 30? Or is uh, that a that lot, means? a lot, a lot quicker since our glycol upgrade. Yeah, oh, refrigeration. Okay. Yeah, it used to, it used to be kind of a struggle, especially in the summer summer months. You know, engineering a, a refrigeration system um, in Boston is a challenge because you got a hundred degree swing. So if you if you just kind of pick 70 degrees, which it almost never, <laughs> you know, right. how happy would we be if it was 70 degrees all the time? Um, then a lot of the year, probably it's going to be a little bit oversized, but you get into the summertime and every degree you go up is that many more times a load on the system. So those 100 degree days, you really load down your glycol in a different way. Um, and it's fascinating because obviously that then goes into the equipment aspect of making Big the beer time. as opposed to the flavors Big and, time. And, and so that's a lot to uh, uh, yeah because because temperature you know a lower temperature and how long we keep there is a really is a good predictor of stability you know and a critical point that we're concerned with you know so even on like a hazy beer we want to crash it down to 30 because what you'll that, that promotes yeast flocculation so forming forming groups of yeast cells which drop out much quicker so we're able to drop those out in the tank and then spin them out in the centrifuge same idea you know settling it just happens much quicker in the centrifuge um, and if we did a beer let's say we conditioned an unfiltered beer at 38 you might have more of those yeast cells suspended if you put that into a package and they decide they're going to flock once they get there then you have an unstable product so and then sort of on the other side when we're stripping all the yeast out and polish filtering it you actually there are types of compounds that form it's bonds between proteins and tannins are thought to be sort of weaker hydrogen bonds so the lower temperatures stuff's moving slower allows them to happen and that makes your if you, the colder you can filter the more effective your filtration is going to be because you form more of those groups that you're going to filter out so if we filtered at a higher temperature we wouldn't have those protein and polyphenol or tannin combinations and they'd get through the filter separately and then possibly combine once they're in a package and you have an unstable beer something that develops a haze weeks or months down the line. And uh, obviously that would lead to unhappy customers and, and some concern perhaps or that sort of thing. So yeah, for us that's that. almost like, I don't think moving target's exactly the right kind of words for it, but it seems like people are pretty tolerant of haze nowadays. So we have to really pick. It's not like with an IPA we're going to say, if we all of a sudden develop a 
little bit of a haze at the end of four months, you know, the end of its plant shelf life, I don't think anybody's going to send it back. You know? Right. That's so, an excellent point. Okay. Yeah. So we have to be, I mean, duty number one, obviously, is to be faithful to consumers. If we thought that they would, you know, we'd have to. And obviously, if you thought there was a problem with the product, you, you wouldn't release that at all. Absolutely. So we're not talking about that. We're talking yeah. about the aesthetics. It's almost yeah. if you're buying yes. a piece of furniture and there's you know the knot of the wood showing yeah. through. 100%. Some people say that's beautiful. That's the haze effect. It doesn't affect the quality of the beer. Yeah, um, yep. yeah, 100%. And it's even sort of funny when, when folks started to make these really hazy styles that you're adding you know, two or a lot of times three, four more pounds per barrel of hops. So, you know, many, many times more hops. Um, and it was thought that you couldn't filter them and get those types of powerful, you know, really pungent kind of um, fruity and citrusy and tropical aromatics and that sort of thing. Now it's swung all the way the other way. We, you can do that. You don't need that much haze. But it's thought that a, a characteristic of that style is to be basically opaque. You know, so it goes all the other way. You can make something that smells and tastes exactly right, and people still want more haze in it. <laughs> Which so is the A, you got to bring people what they want, and B, there's almost a, I'm going to say, never win. Uh, uh, no, that's actually it's not definitely right. Definitely moving targets, yeah. Yeah, definitely moving targets. So you need to uh, manage the taste of the consumers, but actually be ahead of the curve. Because yeah. uh, uh, you can't wait to find out what everybody's buying and yeah. then start the process you yeah. guys need to uh, create what yeah. everybody's buying yeah. so let me ask Aaron and people who listen to the podcast uh, um, may know certainly the people who know me in real life know uh, that I happen uh, to uh, have quit drinking in 1991 I do a lot of work in the addictions recovery movement and that sort of thing and, and, and very much uh, 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 to be clear I am in recovery so I'm talking to uh, uh, one of the most renowned uh, beer companies in ESOP world <laughs> without knowledge base and two questions come to mind and, and and we're joined, as you know, Aaron, but for, so our listeners know, as usual, Brian Kiesling, our producer, uh, is sitting with us, and, and he may come. The first question that I've got is is probably timed with the advent uh, of craft beers generally, because when I quit in 91, uh, it's an exaggeration, but in my mind, there were like seven beers you could buy, six yeah. domestic and like Molson or Heineken if you wanted to be fancy. Yeah. And now there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So can you yeah. tell us a little bit about how the craft breweries have come and changed the world uh, yeah. in the last 20, 30 years? Yeah. Well, we, so we started in 86. That was brewing license number one in Massachusetts. So we hadn't had a brewery operating in Massachusetts since Prohibition. I would have thought maybe it's just because of marketing budgets or that kind of thing that Sam Adams would have been the first because, yeah. you know, they're very, very famous. Yeah. Uh, but you guys actually beat them into production and that sort of thing. They, they were producing... They're producing beer before we were. I I was in. It wasn't actually for an ESOP conference. It was before I I'd gotten into this stuff. But years ago, I was at a different conference in uh, Las Vegas for the job that I was doing. And the cab driver that, that was taking me downtown from the airport said that he used to run a liquor store. Um, and he in the '80s and he distributed Sam Adams out there. So in the '80s, they already had a wide reach. Their two production facilities are in Pennsylvania and Ohio. 
So there's a plant in Jamaica Plain that they do all their test batching and tours and you know everything like that. Um, but but uh, I guess most of the beer must have been coming out of those plants before we started operating. Well, and obviously we're not here to talk about them, and it shows yeah. the fallacy. Of, uh, I don't know if it's popular fallacy or just my lack of knowledge, but I didn't realize their plants were in Pennsylvania. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, uh, but you guys had the first uh, brewery license in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, so the effect of the craft beers. Totally. Yeah. So that, you know, so that was number one. Now, now there are 200, I think, just in Massachusetts um, and 7,000 um, in the country. So that's up. I want to say that the last brewery I worked at started in 91. You know, so there are some of those, you know, that was sort of a scrap room was picking up. By around 2000, it was starting to drop off. And that's when we actually bought the plant up in Windsor. That was the Catamount Brewery. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, because they had a loan out to the bank that, you know, it's, I think people were doing then what they're doing now, which is projecting out these, you know, we grew 30% last year, so let's be conservative and call it 10, maybe maybe a flat, right? you know, right. Um, so that already happened around 2000, um, so the, the number of breweries kind of stagnated, I don't even think, it, I think it, it might have dropped off a little bit, um, and then it really started climbing again, and recently it's accelerated. So let me ask... Um, this, when I mentioned there were only six or seven options, which again was an exaggeration, but that's what it seems. I think it was, uh, yeah, it's probably very close to that. You haven't, there, there used to be eight. My father, uh, back in the day, drank Peel's Real Draft, but oh, once yeah, they went out of business yeah, yeah. in the right. 70s, you know, we were down. Uh, with all of the choices, I, I, I don't want to be rude to, to your customers and beer drinkers everywhere. Who started putting pumpkin in beer, Aaron? Is there any justification for why people would take two food groups and mix them yeah. like that? Because it just seems unnatural to me. I'm not a fan yeah. of the idea. And I don't drink. But yeah. the idea of it is like, what are you people thinking? Yeah. I don't really know. I think um, I think fall kind of brings out certain ingredients like, um, you know, anything, anything with spice in it, um, cranberry, you know, a couple of the kind of things like stuff that's a little, little bit, a little bit more hearty, you know, maybe. Okay. Um, and so pumpkin is a great combination with that. The, the pumpkin itself doesn't add a huge amount of flavor. Some people, it, you know, not our, some people don't even put pumpkin in their pumpkin beers. They just spice them. And to be uh, clear, yours we put pumpkin in. Yeah, it has pumpkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it it adds it adds it adds something. But typically, what we're thinking of with that is really just the spiciness, you know, um, cinnamon and nutmeg and you know all spice, some other spices. And like everything, and, and Brian, when we were uh, getting ready to sit down, you had mentioned uh, you and your brother have a disagreement on blueberry beer. I imagine juggling all of the different flavors uh, uh, for the consumers is challenging. Uh, but uh, Brian is someone in the age demographic who drinks uh any thoughts on the the flavors or that sort of thing yeah i mean it's definitely fun to be able to try new things and and i think you know when i was in college beer was beer but having uh matured a little bit and you know expanding my palate more you do get an appreciation I, the same way people do with wine or any other alcohol for the sort of um the diversity of flavors and that sort of thing and you know having this weird ingredient that you wouldn't necessarily expect can bring a lot to a drink and make it a really nice experience you know i'm, I'm not in love with pumpkin flavored things in general but something about fall makes you just kind of enjoy that mm -hmm. it, it's it's warming you know it warms you up yeah. and it's it's a comfort thing 
right. I hate to uh, take the uh, crotchety old get off my lawn position, but uh, I don't think there should be fruit flavors in beer. Um, I don't think, and we mentioned this on a podcast uh, from about a month ago, everything bagels to me are a crime against nature. Uh, leave some <laughs> of the stuff out. and finally, we disagree on. We disagree on, absolutely. And whoever started putting uh, bacon and uh, chocolate together for desserts, I think um, it's it's just, there's a natural order of things, Aaron. I'm not uh, comfortable <laughs> so with it. as the person at Capital Trustees who actually appreciates things that taste good, I think you're doing, I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> so, Aaron, talk about uh, what are some of the flavors from the uh, consumer's uh, perspective, uh, some of the favorite flavors, and uh, um, or a seasonal, you know, are there any big uh, Christmas specials or, or that sort of thing? Huh? Yeah. Uh, Winter Warmer was our first seasonal that we released in the early night. Actually, you know what? It might have been 89. It was 89. I'll have to, maybe I'll come back and we can edit that. <laughs> Anyways, we've been at it for a long time. As far as we know, it's one of the, it's one of the first seasonals, and so therefore it's been uh, one of the most long-lived. Um, and that's a, that's a spiced winter beer. You know, it's an, it's an amber ale um, that we add um, cinnamon to, and it's, it's just a, you know, like you said, Brian, the kind of warming effect, comforting effect of those types of beers um, in the wintertime, I think, you know, and you see them seasonally, you know, so we talked about the fall flavors a little bit. Spring's a little bit tough because it, it, it might be several months, it might be a day, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's tough to plan for that season. Um, but there's kind of, it seems like there's kind of an implication. Summer, you get a little bit kind of more brighter fruit flavors. So our mango pale ale, you know, wound up being a good fit there. That replaced the summer beer, which was the seasonal in that slot for a long time. Um, and that's that, that was three years ago, and it's been doing well since. So with the flavored beers, um, and again, this is more to just kind of the marketing of it and product placement. Um, when they introduced it in the late 80s, uh, et cetera, there was no sense that 30 years later you'd still be selling that uh, flavor, or was the intent that it would always be permanent? You know, I don't think. I don't think maybe they thought much about. You know, that'd be a great question for Dan, our CEO. You know, I don't. I, I think at that point they were just making beers that they wanted to drink. You know, and we. But Dan had, himself wanted to drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well that makes sense. It. What flavors, you know, are Absolute, interesting? Absolutely. Yeah, that's and, that's, and that's why they that's why they got into it, you know, to, to do that. They'd gone to Europe, experienced the beer culture there. Like you said, there were a handful of options at, at the time. Um, and they wanted to bring, you know, bring some more stuff to consumers and, and that they themselves would want to drink, whereas that people wanted to visit and stuff like that. Um, so I think, I think the seasonal landscape has changed quite a bit because up until a few years ago, we were running summer beer in the summertime, October fest, winter warmer. Um, and at that, at, at a certain point, people started rotating their stuff out after a couple of years. It was almost like you expected. You'd get a season, maybe two out of something, and then see you later. So we started to try to plan for that, rotated the mango in, flannel Fridays, a, a, a higher hopped amber ale for the fall. It's a really good fit that replaced fest, which we're still doing. Um, summer beer turned into House Golden and moved into a year-round spot. So we tried to find spots for those beers, but just kind of plan for the ine inevitability that the next new seasonal that somebody else was going to come out with had a certain had a certain appeal just because it was new, and you sort of plan for it. But now, flannel has really found you know what I mean found a strong following. Where we've gone through our third season of mango. 
in the summertime. So I don't think we necessarily would have expected when we were making those changes for them to last as long. But because people like the stuff, we're able, you know, we're able to keep them around and rely on them. So uh, it's it's funny to have to change and react to these types of things. But you know, lucky that we're able to find stuff that has it has some strength in those spots. Sure. How many flavors at any given time do you put into production or put at the market? Oh my goodness, it's grown so much. We did a couple dozen. Just looking at our records from um, last year, we did at least four maybe five dozen different styles just in Boston and we went past that number by June I think this year wow. yeah and I would say it's probably doubled since then you know it's, it's just it's just crazy um, so Aaron as we said at the uh, top of the recording we're recording this live during the New England conference and so the the folks in the background uh, are just conference goers so we're actually telling that for our listeners uh, so that they understand but um, we love recording at the live conferences where everybody's here uh, so with that with a little bit of noise in the background let's continue um, chatting and Aaron uh, craft breweries uh, seem to be a pretty good fit in some ways for uh, employee ownerships. Uh, yes. There are a number of uh, uh, breweries who have gone the ESOP route. Mm -hmm. And just talk a little bit about, uh, is there something about craft brewery as an industry that leads it to uh, being ESOP friendly, that sort of thing? Is it just a fluke? What do you think? Uh, uh, yeah, I, th I think if the founders know and care about it, like like Dan Canary, our CEO, does, um, it's you know they they have to have that it's it's sort of a natural fit because the craft beer industry attack attracts people who are passionate about what they do you know so in that sense it's a great fit but um, they still need to have folks you know founders that that would have heard about and care enough about that strategy to go there so uh, as many um, craft breweries that have gone ESOP which is awesome and, and I think the number of those has doubled or tripled since our transaction which is fantastic there are also other places that are you know our size and age roughly that um, when it's time for them to go to you know go to the next stage in their succession plan they would sell to a private equity or a strategic like that or something like that so so it's it's much like any other industry and yeah. uh, uh, the founder, selling shareholder, et cetera, et cetera. Oftentimes, we'll need an exit strategy. We'll need yeah. uh, something as a way to pull uh, liquidity out. They don't yeah. necessarily exit and that sort of thing. Yeah. So when the decision is made, the ESOP, you know, just in traditional exit planning strategy, uh, ESOP may be an option, but selling out to a large conglomerate uh, uh, can also be the case as well. Being better, you know, one of those. Yeah, and it, it, it seems like you know why some of those deals have happened. You know, maybe if the founders had heard or knew about ESOPs or how to, you know, had advisors where they could. Execute them or something like that. Maybe they would have done that, but you know, of course, ABI is not going to come to the table and say, "Well, you can sell to your employees too." You know, so right. that side's not getting the shake as much. We're, we're extremely, extremely fortunate in that respect, you know, um, and also to have you know the founder Dan who who wants to stay and make this run the best that it possibly can, you know. Um, so it was a succession strategy for um, you know the, his co-founder Rich. You know, that's where most of the 48% of the shares in the ESOP came from in 2014. Um, and then we've got Dan, who's here and, and cares that much about it and committed to making it a majority ESOP 
um, in the in the best way possible. So, is there a sense of time frame for uh, the majority ESOP, or is it just one of the uh, we're on the path and get there when you get yeah, there? Yeah, I think the I think the market's such that it is right now that you know they the strategists all have a bunch of things to balance. You know, right. So, um, and this the, and and it's working now. So, yeah. there's no need for imminent uh, changes. That yeah, right. absolutely. So, uh, talk a little bit earlier in this uh, recording, you had referenced uh, uh, that one or two things were employee initiatives, yeah. uh, which I assume is tied to it being employee owned. Yes. So, talk a little bit about the effects of uh, being an ESOP on Harpoon. Yeah. How's it changed your company? What's yeah, we, we had a really good culture to begin with, so it's um, it wasn't like flicking a switch or something like that, um, where all of a sudden we're employee owned and we've got you know more of like an ownership spirit. It's an ownership spirit before that, but of course you need the you need the ESOP component as well. Right. Um, so I would I guess it just sort of augmented a lot of the good things that were there already. You know, people care more. Um, People will figure out how to use our continuous improvement program, you know, or we've, we've really, we had initiatives before that. We formalized the program and track it. And I think the results are very tangible with that. You know, just talking locally in our salary department in Boston, we've increased our efficiency by 50%. Fifty percent. Fifty percent. Wow! Very yeah, impressive. yeah. Honest to God, yeah. Thank you. It's I. It's it's all people's ideas. That's the coolest thing. We were doing before we were an ESOP company. We struggled to put six batches through our finishing system. So the centrifuge and a lot of times the filter in a day, and we do eight, nine, or ten now. We did uh, eight batches of beer through a filter bed twice, and it was a challenge before that and we just did 12 we did 11 a couple times in our sleep really it's we could go probably the whole week on one filter bed now wow and that wasn't from any new pieces of equipment that was from uh seller operators figuring out better ways grassroots better ways to do things which is what we like to see in, in employee-owned companies. We like to see it in any company, but yeah. obviously our focus is on the ESOPs, yeah. where the employees understand with some skin in the game that uh, you know they uh, benefit from the results. Yeah. So they, finding a way to bring down expenses uh, yeah. or innovate your processes is very much a natural component of being an ESOP. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a natural component. It's something that people, I would say people have a natural drive to do. I think um, the constructed part of it is having a system that that helps to people to use that in the best way possible you know um, if, if people if people do have these ideas and certainly they know you know we can we can make a very safe assumption that people who are doing those jobs every day know how to make them better they don't have an outlet for that it can be frustrating you know um, and it's it's far as far as I know there's no perfect system so you know, we've had to work hard to get to the point where we see those types of results, and it's still not perfect. We've come up over the past several years, just the ones that we've tracked, 200 ideas and 60 are completed. So we're at we're at a 30 percent, which I have no idea what world class is in terms of idea systems, but 30 percent seems to leave an awful lot of room for improvement. Right, right. But obviously, there's still tangible results, and people take a huge amount of pride. You know, our our folks take a huge amount of pride in what they've done, and it really helps because so. When the market shifted and you have seven thousand breweries for the first time, up from six, five, you know, four a couple of years ago, and you have to continually innovate to 
keep people interested and get, you know, really be faithful to consumers to stay relevant um, and all that kind of stuff. If we had made a lot of those improvements, which we were doing for the sake of doing them, you know, making our, making our jobs better, um, adding share value, you know, of course, as a, as a result of those things, it would have been much more difficult to keep up with the adjustments that we've had to make since then, you know, so if we if we couldn't put eight batches through, you know, in a day, and all of a sudden we had to make all these other changes, you know, maybe we would at that point we would have been putting two quads of IPA through, and it was sort of a standard thing. And now we might be doing a quad of IPA and four other batches. So there's transition time between those things um, that we would have had to absorb. And if we weren't out ahead of it, it, it would have caused problems. And ultimately, it's just human nature uh, in traditional companies that aren't employee-owned. Um, the end of the work shift comes, you're not necessarily motivated to think about it, care. You yeah. know, you... Uh, 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 Take your check. We assume you know, put an honest service for the check. But there is that extra component of wanting to go further yeah. because you have a piece of it. Yeah, absolutely, and that's and that's a great point about continuous improvement is that people need some, you know, time away from their normal work to be able to come up with and follow through on these things. So whether that's after hours or whether you do enough of them that people people can find chunks of time during the day around their normal work to be able to do it um, is is a, is a necessity, you know. Sure. Aaron, let me ask a question, and then we'll talk a little bit about your work in the ESOP Association. But as a way to segue that, uh, you're a relatively young man. You mm -hmm. mentioned recently married, relatively speaking, mm -hmm. and a baby. What's the baby's name? Mm -hmm. Alex. We just wanted yeah. to uh, be the first ones uh, to be able to say, hi, Alex. <laughs> Daddy's on the podcast doing well. Oh, that's so awesome. Um, I'm going to show that to that, him. <laughs> <laughs> well, play it. Uh, there's nothing much to say. No, I'm yeah, 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 right, no yeah. absolutely. And uh, your wife's name? Uh, Mandy. Mandy. So so you and Mandy have Alex. Yes. Can you talk and, and start ask a personal question, but I think people will be curious. What does it mean to be an employee owner for you as a young person with a child? Yeah. A lot of people your age, when I was your age, uh, uh, don't think about retirement. Yeah. And as our listeners know, ESOPs are a qualified retirement plan. That's yeah. really, you know, everything that springs, springs from the fact that it's a uh, uh, retirement plan. What does that mean to you personally that you're in, in with a company where that's uh, a benefit for you? I mean, the, the fact that we can, you know, we have some idea, hopefully, of, of what the ESOP is going to do for us and we can plan around our retirement. I, I really couldn't imagine thinking about retiring without it. I don't think I probably would think about it for a while, you know, without that. Um, so that's a big component of it. And the other one, I think it's important that my son grows up to see his father enjoying what he does at work, you know. And so hopefully he can, you know what I mean? That I. My, my folks always liked what they did. You know, my father worked um, in the Office of Community Development in the, in the city of Lynn uh, for decades, and he, he always seemed to like what he did. And my mother was a lawyer and then went on to teach, and she liked what she was doing. Um, and so I think that's I think that's an important thing for a kid to see growing up, and, you know, his parents care about what they do, and they don't just go to work to... And I love that you said that, and just because I can, I'm going to turn to my son, Brian. Brian, do you have a sense that I enjoy what I'm doing? Yes, yeah, I do. Um, you you clearly love ESOPs, and that's what brought the ESOP podcast about, just you know, sharing that with other people as well, and spreading that knowledge and joy for the, the community here, so... 
And what I like, Aaron, is you had mentioned there's a certain pride if you're working for a craft brewer that, that a lot of people really uh, passion. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a passion for just the process and the flavors and, mm -hmm. and all of that. And then you have the passion that comes from employee ownership. So yeah. it seems like strength built upon strength. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, like I said, I think people have to have an outlet. For, you know what I mean? You have to you have to figure out constructive ways to process people's ideas for all sorts of things. You know, because with all that comes a whole bunch of ideas for all different parts of the business, you know. Right. We've been successful in the cellar because, you know, we've been able to more or less focus in on our local work. But there are all types of other, you know, all other different suggestions and stuff that pop up. I feel for marketing in particular because a lot of people have ideas about marketing stuff. Nobody comes to me and tells me how to run the centrifuge, you know. <laughs> hey, Aaron, we were sitting at lunch uh, talking yeah. about the centrifuge and we have this idea. Yeah. A little twist to the torque, uh, yeah. uh, whereas everybody, hey, we need billboards, we need, you Absolute, know, uh, absolutely. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That's very funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's a, little, there's a little bit of a disproportion, I think. Um, and, and of course, we got to deal with that too, because with the, with that kind of passion, like you know, people people really care and get behind things. And um, I think we've gotten we've been receptive to and agile enough to try to figure out the best ways to process, you know, kind of collect and process those things and stuff like that. But you know, that can be a challenge at the same time. Um, I, I think fate, you know, just facing up to it's the biggest thing and trying to figure out better ways to do things. Um, has, has kept, kept us so we're able to improve on it. Excellent. And that's, you know, we see that with employee-owned companies all the yeah. time. You happen to be uh, in the uh, adult beverage market, yeah. uh, but the uh, context that you're speaking about employee ownership yeah. is a hallmark of what we think are successful employee-owned companies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you yeah. know, that fits in. So, Aaron, as a segue to uh, uh, moving towards wrapping this up, you're a... Uh, Officer of the New England chapter of the ESAP Association, yes, Executive sir. Vice President, I believe. Yep. And I'm assuming that that office did not really exist before, but somebody said, hey, we got a guy who works for a brewery, let's make him an officer so you can bring oh, beer into meetings. Beer, yeah. Is that, uh, uh, that's probably not how it happened. Uh, I, I wish I had some bottles that we could, you know, or caps that we could pop or something like that. I was, there, uh, there is beer. I was <laughs> disappointed. I had mentioned to you, Aaron, that uh, I thought this might have been the first podcast that was after hours because you're at Harpoon and you were going to be able drink through it. Yeah. We started recording at 9 uh, uh, a.m., so it seemed a little bit early. Uh, so you're actually doing this podcast sober. We'll have to correct that in the future. Yeah, after well, several cups of coffee, but yeah. Actually, <laughs> something else that has changed since you stopped drinking is now people drink all the time. It's great. Oh, excellent. <laughs> See, back in my day, that was a problem. Now that's, uh, apparently, that's a good thing. So, uh, Aaron, uh, first of all, what do you do as executive vice president? What's your role in the chapter? When, when the opportunity came up um, and, and Maria Prado told me about it, she's, she's our immediate past president, um, she said you can, it can be whatever you make it. The idea is that, you know, after a two-year term, you go up to being the president from the executive vice president. So I think the most important thing is to watch what um, Amy does now, our president. Um, I believe she's going to talk that's a little bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 sorry. No, yeah, no, no, Amy that's Hewitt. not yeah. a problem. And, and, <laughs> um, and 
we'll be sitting down with Amy actually uh, shortly yeah. for a, a mini cast to give her recap of that. Yeah. So you're actually online to uh, this is a takeover of the uh, chapter. You're a year or two away. Yeah, right? yeah. Expect yeah. that you would accede to presidency. Yep, yep, exactly. So to to watch what she does, everything that she does to make it run, which she does a tremendous job. Uh, Maria Prado before her um, won the chapter officer of the year out of national. You know, very very well right. deserved. So uh, and Maria's just a great person. Does a absolutely. great job and 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 again is one of the uh, just hallmarks of this chapter in terms of employee owners and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, big time. So gr great examples, big, big shoes to fill. So, um, but, uh, but they do it right, so I don't have any excuse for doing <laughs> not good job. I get great well, folks to learn from. And we appreciate it. Um, we appreciate your service to the ESOP Association because, uh, as you and I have talked through the years, you know, we think robust ESOP community is good for everybody. Mm. Obviously, Harpoon Brewery. Um, is making an investment in time and energy by your mm -hmm. participating. Mm -hmm. So um, why is it important to Harpoon? Why is it important to you personally to play a, an active role in the chapter? I think we, we treat it as a best practice to get involved with these things. And, you know, when we when we started doing it just a couple years ago, a few years ago, 2014, um, there are so many great examples of really strong cultures in, in New England um, that we kind of looked around and saw everything that people were doing and just thought that that's how a great ESOP company acts and didn't really know any other way than to, than to try to do it. And it's been, you know, a ton of work goes into it. We have a long, long way to go. But um, that's that's kind of the way that I think about it. And I think we think about it is that it's a best practice. So when you have the opportunity to get involved and learn on different things, and then hopefully when you start to figure out some stuff to give it back to other folks or new folks um, and help them out, I, I think that's just the right thing to do. And, you know, the funny thing, Aaron, is it's almost a variation of that uh, adage that everybody talks about that uh, if you want to be successful, follow successful people or successful companies, kind of uh, uh, imitations a sign of flattery. Yeah. And it almost sounds a little bit like companies that you might have uh, respected, not necessarily brewers, but but employee-owned companies oh, were very involved and therefore yeah. Yeah. do what the successful ones are doing, which yeah. is having folks like yourself be involved in the association. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's such a strong, I mean, we have such a strong chapter. You know what I mean? It's the whole organization itself is very strong. There's a ton of great material at all these conferences. Um, it's just been a great, you know, and it's funny because craft brewers have a reputation for like sharing all their information and stuff like that. And not just because this is an ESOP podcast, but I'll say ESOP companies in whatever industry put them to shame. You know, you go to one of these conferences and people in the same, I forget who put it, who this was that put it best, like companies that operate out of the same area in the same industry will freely share information with one another as if there were no competitive disadvantage to doing so. It's really, really remarkable and it's, it's been totally consistent from what I've seen. Um, so there's just there's just a ton of great information. People will say like as as you know sort of tongue in cheek like you know we go to the conferences to steal stuff, you know, and it's and it's not stealing because it's freely given, right? Um, right. But but that's kind of the that's kind of the joke, and it's just a ton of great. Material. And we should point out stealing ideas. You know, it's not like they're going to break into your trunk and take your luggage. We don't want people totally. to think there's a crime. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. At the no, conferences. No, 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 yeah. Well, <laughs> if they would find beer, there's a lot of beer. <laughs> so. This has been a very successful conference uh, in Mystic, Connecticut, and your fall conferences uh, just have a history of, of being very well run, very well organized. What's been your favorite part of the uh, conference so far? Um, 
it's always the people, you know. I, I think a lot of things change. We've, you know, we've we've been doing this for a few years, um, and so our, you know, our company role has changed. My role has changed a little, you know, and so there's those things have all kind of changed. That the people are always the best part, you know. Um, your event last night was it was just a great gathering of folks. Uh, we uh, uh, and just for our listeners, we uh, had a uh, reception last night. Capital Trustees had at the Engine Room in Mystic, Connecticut, uh, celebrating the opening of our New England office and uh, an awful lot of folks from the conference were kind enough to uh, come and join us. So uh, that was a lot of fun. Aaron, as we wrap up, uh, companies, whether they're employee-owned or not, have only so many resources and it takes a commitment. Uh, There are uh, certain companies that always uh, come to the associations with a large contingent. Web Industries up in New England is one, Restec, Gladfelder Pennsylvania, et cetera, et cetera. Why, in your opinion, do you think an employee-owned company should uh, expend the resources to send uh, uh, employee owners to the conferences? It seems like, I mean, Don Romine, the CEO of Web Industries, said it um, to us. He came to talk to us last year during, you know, at, at the Boston plant during Ownership Month and said, um, it's just a lot, of, it's a lot of bang for your buck. You know, and they obviously back that up by sending a ton of people. They've got 20 people at this conference. Um, so it seems like, and I, I go to a lot of these things as another, I was, I was the uh, chairman of our communications committee for the first two years, so that's kind of how I got into it. But I forget sometimes, because I've been going to these things for a while, that other people don't, you know. They, they don't get to talk to folks at other employee-owned companies or... Um, you know, to do what you do, or you know, it's and so you I, have expert, I, access to uh, some of the professional advisors and expertise, but also companies that uh, would have some insight whether they're in your industry or not. Yeah, and just to, to talk, you know, to talk ESOP stuff, it's like a real, it's like a real big boost. Um, I, I forget sometimes that um, other of my coworkers don't get to do that as often as I do, and it's you know, I think the more people that do that will go back and they work with half a dozen, a dozen people. So it's just a way to be able to, you know, spread all this good Spread the passion and, and, and the, the passion, enthusiasm. Yeah, not even just information, just a, just a general kind of feeling, positive Is feeling. There a, um, do you have a way that you'll go back and share information from here? Is there any kind of formal or informal way, or is it just part of you becoming yeah. the ESOP evangelist while you're at work? Uh, a little of both, you know. I, I think your, I think our immediate groups are kind of the, you know, the best ways to transmit. So our team in the cellar, you know, um, we can, you know, even on the shop floor in our meetings, um, talk about material from conferences, um, and that's a, that's a great way to, very direct way to reach folks. Um, we're a department of eight people in a company of three hundred, so it's, so it's almost like. I don't know, gravity a little bit, you know. Right. The, so the, you can get a real strong pull with those folks, and then the further you go, the, the other group uh, would be our communications committee, you know, um, talking with them about this and hopefully getting some more of them to the next conference or the conferences after that. Um, and then otherwise engaging people. The, the, you know, it's got a lot of carryover with the continuous improvement plan that we're making a concerted effort to improve. (laughs) A well-named incentive effort. Aaron, talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned the communication structure and and, and sorry because I sort of thought to bring this up uh, a little bit earlier. Talk about uh, whether they're committees and I believe you're internally trusted? Yes, we are. Yeah, we have a... So just explain how the ESOP is set up to work. uh, uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got our, we've got our 
board and um, Dan sits on that as the as the chairman. It's the board of directors. Yeah, yep, yep. And he's the CEO as well. Um, you've got your senior leaders, um, and you know it's a pretty typical kind of structure, right. from what I understand, as far as that goes. Amongst the body of employee owners, um, will elect two, and then you select two people per year to replace the four seats on our twelve-person committee that rotate. Um, so a third of the committee rotates through. So that's that's picked out of the whole body of employee owners. Um, and the employee owners can vote for who? Like, do people decide they yeah. want to run? Are they recruited? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we, we generally, it takes about a month, sort of a month process. Um, and we kind of, we start off by saying, um, sending out an email to everyone saying, hey, it's that time again. Um, if you're interested in committee membership, it's a three-year term. Here are some basic expectations. Um, reply if you want to throw your hat into the ring. And then we'll uh, put that docket together, let folks vote over a couple of days, just with like a survey monkey or something like that over email. Um, and then we get that group together and then we select the next two. And the, whole, and the idea is that you want to give people a choice, um, but knowing that departments are, can be vastly different sizes. You know, I mean, you know, the, the quality lab in Windsor is two people. Uh, right. Boston production is 60 plus. You know, so you want to be able to represent to some extent even all the departments, the geography. Yeah. part of geography, uh, outer market sales is another one. You know, we've got a couple people covering the whole south of the country. You know, so right. it's like so you want them to have a voice and know that they're probably not going to win a popular vote. <laughs> right. Um, so that's but why it's important. Their view they have is the outside marketing is very Hugely important. important. So you want to make sure that the the views are considered. You know, yeah. it's just good management. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we you know we certainly try, and they have you know they have unique challenges too because it's like how do you? That's a it's an employee-owned company. It's important to feel that way in the community. If they only come to the plant in Boston three times, four times out of the year, how do you make sure that they? That they have as much access to that as as the other folks who have you know a little bit more geographic advantage. Excellent. With that, Aaron, we're going to uh, wrap up today. I'm curious. It seems to me only fair that if somebody ever approaches you in a bar and says, "I heard you on the ESOP podcast," that you should <laughs> buy them a beer. I know you haven't said that. I'm just saying. Uh, uh, I think uh, you get, listeners should at least try track Aaron down, say, "Hey, I heard you on the podcast," and see if you can guilt them into buying a beer. I would like that. I'd be I'd be happy to buy him a beer, especially if it's a Harpoon or another ESOP company or an independent craft brewer that will hopefully go. Up someday. There's lots of good beers out there. Aaron, uh, uh, you and I have uh, been uh, meeting up at conferences for a few years now. Yeah. I uh, like and respect you quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, really appreciate that you uh, sat down with us on the ESOP podcast. Yeah. Uh, it is once again Aaron Moberger of Harpoon Brewery, the executive vice president of the New England uh, uh, ESOP Association chapter and uh, presumably future president. Thank you so much for your time and sharing everything uh, with us today. Yeah, thank, thank the both of you very much. The respect's completely mutual. I'm glad we bumped into each other in D.C. Uh, that that time, and you generously offered a cigar and had a wonderful time smoking it and talking and getting to know you and catching up ever since. And really grateful that you'd think of me and Harpoon for for your podcast. And Aaron, just even though I just did the closing. Oh yeah, sorry. It, I didn't know. No, 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 no. But it it, it actually just ties in uh, to what we were talking about. Uh, 
I was at the DC conference. You were there. Uh, it was uh, at the end of the day, and people who know me know that I tend to uh, have a cigar at the, every day, but at the conferences as well. So I was in front of the hotel, and uh, you and our friend uh, Joe Verry of Morgan yeah. Stanley uh, happened to step outside for some fresh air. And uh, I don't think you and I had met. Uh, there was a company tour of Harpoon Brewery that year that yeah. I hadn't gone to because, yeah. again, I don't drink, so, yeah. you know, whatever. But you and I probably had like a 25-minute conversation. Yeah. on the street yeah. about Harpoon, about employee ownership. Yeah. And that's what you were talking about when you said if companies come, you have access to resources where people who don't know each other are just happy to spend time yeah. talking. And I benefited from meeting you, and I don't know that I said anything that wasn't you know, silly. We've, uh, no, we've, we've that's how the relationships grow, yeah. and that's also a great advantage for the ESOP Association. Yeah, it, it sure is. Terrific, terrific people. Excellent. Well, with that, I'm breaking one of Brian's cardinal rules, which is I said goodbye a minute and a half ago and kept talking. <laughs> so with that, Aaron, thank you again for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the ESOP Podcast, brought to you by Capital Trustees and their managing directors, Brett Kiesling and Rich Heater. Production assistance provided by Brian Kiesling and Third Circle Inc. Logo designed by Bitsy Plus Design and music created by Max Kiesling. Join us again next time for the ESOP Podcast.